Thanks for tuning in to the Excel Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. In this final episode of our mental health series, I have the privilege of speaking with Michael Herman about his personal experience with depression and recovery. Michael's been practicing law for over 30 years and is a strong advocate for mental health in the legal community. Currently, Michael serves as general counsel to Gowling WLG in Toronto, where he's also a business law partner. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Michael. Hi, Shelley, and thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm really looking forward to our discussion, particularly now when so many people are struggling with mental health issues that have either been brought on by or worsened by the COVID pandemic. Yep. I thought a good place to start would be your work as a mental health advocate. I find that so intriguing. And I guess my first question is really, what does it mean to be a mental health advocate for the legal community and why have you taken on that role? Um, it's a very good question. Um, I don't think I ever set out to become an advocate. Um, I went through uh, a very difficult period uh, a couple of years ago um, where I suffered from a very severe uh, depressive episode and as a result uh, really was off work for close to a year. Uh, fortunately, I was able to recover uh, sufficiently to be able to return to work and, and to be able to resume um, some semblance of normalcy in my life, although recovery is a lifetime journey. Mm. Um, and I made a decision that I would uh, share my story. I would share my experience. Um, and I hoped in doing that, and the real purpose for doing that, was that if, if I could do that in a way that might have an impact on one person who was struggling in silence and, and was not seeking out help or seeking ways to address their situation, um, then that was worth it. It made sense for me to, to share my story and my experience. If something resonated with one person. Um, and, and that's how I began um, developing my story and, and, and how I was going to talk about my story. Mm-hmm. And as I developed the story, um, I started to realize that the lessons that I've been learning through my journey of recovery, and again, the lessons I'll continue to learn, I suspect, uh, along the way of my recovery, intersected uh, with what law firms and the profession and other organizational leaders uh, can do within their organizations to help address the issues of mental health. Um, that the business case for doing it was compelling and there is a lot of information out there now about the business case for uh, taking on uh, the leadership of making mental health and well-being 
a priority. Mm -hmm. And the moral case and the moral responsibility just could not be ignored. Mm -hmm. And so those, my story and my lessons and uh, intersected with things that I thought that leaders could be doing. Uh, and, and so it sort of morphed from being just me talking about me, which is still primarily what my story is about, um, to talking a bit more generally. And in that sense, I guess I have become a bit of an advocate, uh, for mental health, but, but as I said, it wasn't really the intention behind my deciding to speak out. Right, right. So perhaps you could share uh, your story with us. So imagine, if you can, um, that you wake up every morning and, and you feel like you're being sucked into a deep, dark hole into which no light can enter and from which there is no escape. And it's if you're falling into an abyss every single day sounds awful yeah it didn't feel great and um and and in that state and it was every single morning in that state um i would do one of three things i would most of the time numb myself uh so that i felt no emotion i had no interest there was no reaction to anything Mm. Um, at other times I would feel a profound sadness that hurt like more than any physical pain that I'd ever experienced. I would never experienced hurt like that. Mm. And then on rare occasions, I'd feel like I was being buried alive and you can imagine the fear and panic that would go along with that. Uh, so those were sort of the three states that I was living in for an extended period of time. And this was all as a result of sort of the end result of a period over which I had been experiencing a variety of different physical symptoms um, that were impeding my ability to concentrate and focus and be productive and were depleting me of all energy. And I finally hit a wall and I crashed. And uh, I decided, oh, I'll take a few months off. I'll sort of try and address these physical symptoms and then I'll be fine and I'll just go back to work. And at the end of three months, that's what I did. I thought I was better and I went back to work and realized within a matter of a couple of weeks that actually I wasn't better and I was in no condition to be working. And so I took an indefinite leave of absence. I had no idea what was going to happen. But mm -hmm. I still thought I had to focus entirely on the physical symptoms. And then one morning, I was, uh, uh, it was a beautiful, like early summer morning, and we live in a condo. Uh, and I went out onto the balcony with a cup of coffee. And I was looking out over beautiful view of the city. And then we have the ravine behind our condo. Mm -hmm. And as I'm standing there in this lovely setting, um, a thought just entered into my mind, uh, and it was, what's the point? Oh, what's yeah. the point? Mm. And it like staggered me. And I sort of like fell backwards back into the apartment. And uh, at that point, somehow I realized that 
my issues really weren't the physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. And that if I was going to get better, that I was going to have to change my mindset and my approach completely because my issues were really the mental health issues that were causing the physical symptoms. Wow. And that was the first time that you saw that there might be a mental health element to what you were struggling with? It's a, that's a great question because I think people had said to me, you know, maybe you're experiencing a lot of stress. Maybe it's stress that's causing the problem. And I would say, ah, you know, I've dealt with stress all my life. Yeah, at times it's been hard, but like, you know, you get through it. You push through. And that's the way you deal with stress. And that's the way I'd always dealt with stress. And so people had sort of been saying things to me, but I was sort of just blowing it off, if you will. Uh, mm. None of it was actually landing with me. Um, but once I had that moment, um, it was sort of, whoa, I've got to look at this entirely differently. Mm. And so that started uh, uh, a long period of recovery. Uh, and, and, and that recovery had a variety of different components that were associated with it. Um, there, first there was psychiatric support. And it's interesting. One of the first things that the psychiatrist said to me is you will get better, but it's going to take much longer than you think. Hmm. And I didn't hear that for the first <laughs> few weeks. Um, I kept expecting to wake up one day and magically feel better. Uh, and then finally it started to sink in through my very thick skull that this was going to take a long time. Um, medication uh, helped. Um, my wife's support was incredibly important. Um, self-care. I can't underestimate how important self-care is. So I started to introduce changes into uh, my nutrition. I started to uh, exercise more, um, although I could still do more than I'm doing. <laughs> but I started to exercise more, and there's now apparently a fair amount of evidence that shows the benefits of exercise as it relates to depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, I had dabbled in mindfulness meditation for a number of years, um, but I decided to really try and make it a daily part of my routine. Um, and I started journaling. Hmm. Um, and, and that's an interesting one um, because what I started doing is I used to wake up in the morning and the first thing I would do is just go. And I would go as long as I could, as hard as I could, and then I would stop. And that would be sometime in the evening. And by deciding to take up journaling, and I tried taking it up many times previously because people had said it's a, it's a good exercise, mm -hmm. uh, but I had never stuck with it. Um, and, and this time I decided that I'd wake up. And instead of going, that what I would do is I would sit down and I would take out the journal and I would write three pages of just stream of consciousness stuff, like whatever came into my head. Mm -hmm. And if I actually try and go back and look at what I've written, 
Um, first, I can't read my writing most of the time. <laughs> uh, but, but secondly, um, I have no idea what I was saying. Like I'm, I'm reading stuff and going, I have no idea what I meant. Uh, but that's okay. It was, it was the, the exercise of doing it. Uh, and, and, and what I realized is doing this allowed me to take a pause first thing in the morning. And that then enabled me to start my day with a different mindset as to how to approach the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, those are self-care tools that I've adopted and that work for me. Um, you know, everybody's got to find their own things that work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but self-care was another important part of it. Uh, and then, the firm's support, and I think this is important for organizations, um, the, the support I got from the firm, um, I, again, I can't underestimate how crucial it was to my recovery. The first thing is the firm said, you know, you will come back when you are ready to come back. And mm-hmm. when you are ready to come back, we want you back. Um, but then there were sort of three elements to the firm's support that I think were really, really important. The first was connection. So when someone is suffering from depression like I was and you're at home, you're tremendously isolated. You feel mm-hmm. very much alone. You don't want to be with other people. You don't want to go out and about. Um, you know, my psychiatrist would sort of force me to go out and about, uh, but you feel very isolated and to just have connection with people who are reaching out to you. Hey, how you doing? How are things going? Is there anything we can do to help you out? That connection and feeling that I was still part of this workplace community, this community was really important. Wow. Um, The second was flexibility. So for me, what happened was very slowly over an extended period of time, I started to work from home a few hours a day, several days a week, then increased that a little bit, then slowly started to go into the office a couple of days just for a few hours. And this process took place over about a six month period. And, and so the flexibility that was shown to enable me to reintegrate back into the workplace uh, in a way that honored what I was experiencing and, and how difficult this process was going to be was really important as well. Mm-hmm. And the third element was what I call alignment. Um, and, and here is, there, there's a whole bunch of stakeholders that are involved. Uh, there's the psychiatrist, there's the employer, uh, there's the insurance company um, uh, who are, is paying your disability. Um, and, and so all of these stakeholders um, all have their own perspective on you know, what they'd like to see happen. 
Um, and the last thing that I needed when I need, wanted to focus entirely on my recovery was for the stakeholders to be at odds with each other. Yeah, yeah. And, and so in my case, I was very fortunate that they were all aligned and they were all in agreement that ultimately it was the psychiatrist that would make the final decisions about things. Hmm. And so as a result, I didn't have to worry about having to manage all of these different stakeholders, mm-hmm. which is not something that I would have been in a, in a good position to do. So mm-hmm. you had the connection, the flexibility and the alignment. And, and the interesting thing about those three terms is while they were happening externally, they were also happening internally. So I was learning how to connect to what was going on inside me. Hmm. I was learning how to be flexible (laughs) with what I was experiencing from a day-to-day basis. And I was learning how to try and align internally um, with my values and with who I wanted to be as a person and how I wanted to live my life. So you had those things happening externally and you also had them happening with me internally. Mm -hmm. And the combination of all of that ultimately allowed me to be able to get back to work on a full-time basis. Wow. Wow. And how long ago was that, Michael? So uh, I returned to work on a full-time basis in um, about two and a half years ago. So most of this took place through 2016 and 2017. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm just so happy to hear how well you sound now um, and and also how wonderful Gowling WLG has been throughout the whole process. We don't hear that very often, a law firm being so supportive, uh, particularly when it comes to mental health issues. Um, I've heard a statistic, I mean, so many statistics about um, lawyers and mental health, but one that stuck with me is that lawyers have the highest rate of depression among all professions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lawyers and doctors, apparently. Oh. Um, but yes, the statistics for lawyers um, when it comes to depression, anxiety, and substance misuse hmm. are significantly higher than for the general population. Uh, and um, while there have been some surveys and some studies done, the most uh, extensive was one done by the Betty Ford Foundation. Um, it, I think it's underreporting just how significant the problems are. Um, but, you know, according to the World Health Organization, depression is now the number one illness. Um, this was before COVID. Hmm. Uh, and we know that COVID has just exacerbated mental health issues across the board for yeah. everybody. Um, and lawyers are well above the norms of the general population. Yeah. And do you have any thoughts on why that might be? So I, I, I have thoughts about most things. (laughs) You're a lawyer after all. (laughs) I'm a lawyer after all. Um, (laughs) um, so I'm, but I'm not an expert. 
Uh, and so I can offer my observations, um, what I see and, 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 and how I look at it, but, but I'm certainly speaking from my own personal observations and, and not as an expert on the topic. Right. Uh, but I break it down into sort of two categories of things that I see. The first is the nature of lawyers. Um, and here I'm generalizing and, and it, you know, it's always a bit dangerous to generalize, but nonetheless, I'll proceed to do so. <laughs> um, so law is the one profession uh, where pessimists are more likely to succeed than optimists. Hmm. So law is a profession filled with pessimists. Um, and, and it makes sense because what does law require? It needs people who are highly skeptical and people who are always looking for problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a pessimistic sort of character uh, is likely to be very good at doing those things. Um, the second is law is filled with type A personalities, people who are driven to succeed at the expense of everything else, at the expense of the health, at the expense of their families, at the expense of other things that if they people took the time to step back and look inside, would realize that they're missing out on some really important things in life. Mm. Um, and, and a third thing that I, I, I talk about is, as lawyers, we sort of put on a mask um, and we, it's a mask of, of conveying confidence and strength and being in control of things. Mm -hmm. And that's important because, you know, clients want to see that from their lawyers, from their advisors. Um, and so it's important that we, you know, wear that mask in our role as lawyers. I think far too many of us, and I was guilty of this, forget that when we leave the office, we can leave the mask in the office mm -hmm. and we continue to wear it uh, throughout the rest of our lives. And so there is all sorts of emotional baggage that's getting suppressed and, and not addressed that we carry with us and, and we're not dealing with it. And that's a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. That's a recipe for depression or anxiety or misusing substances because we're not really experiencing and dealing with the full gamut of the human experience mm -hmm. um, because we just refuse to take off our masks. Right, right. So that's the nature of lawyers. Um, in terms of the second category is the structure of the profession. Um, so people have talked about, you know, how detrimental it is to people's mental health for everybody to be valued based on how many billable hours they have and the size of their book of business. Mm -hmm. um, and people have talked about, you know, sort of the billable hour making no sense and we should be doing away with the billable hour. Since I started practicing law, as you as said, more than 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, and it's still there. 
and mm -hmm. it is still the primary means by which uh, both firms are compensated and by which lawyers are measured. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that brings with it a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, secondly, the nature of the legal practice, even if you're not a litigation lawyer, it's an adversarial practice. Um, as a corporate lawyer, um, even if I'm negotiating a deal that both sides want to consummate, that they both want to complete, there's nonetheless going to be a lot of negotiating over specific points and who's going to get what and, 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 and that's, you know, part of the toing and froing of how a deal gets made. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is adversarial in a sense. Um, the third point I'd make is, is that the relationship with clients has changed over the years. Um, there's been a shift away from the lawyer as trusted advisor to a client to a much more transactional relationship with the client. Mm -hmm. um, and because clients are under pressure, um, they say to the lawyers, we want you to do more for less. Right. And that puts pressure on the lawyers. Um, and as well, clients have shown a much greater willingness, and I'm not judging this, but have shown a much greater willingness to change their lawyers. <laughs> um, so you don't see the sort of long-term loyalty that existed with clients that, that was the norm when I remember I started out in practice. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the relationship with clients is another whole area that, that has uh, is part of the structure of the profession that uh, makes it difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's technology. Technology yeah. has brought many wonderful things, um, but it also means that, you know, we're expected to be on 24 seven. Um, and we have to do things really, really quickly. And so we have no time to think. Mm -hmm. um, and we feel like if we aren't available 24 seven, that that's gonna be held against us. Whether that's true or not, we feel that way. Mm -hmm. and, and so that increases the pressure that we experience. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think the profession has been very slow to recognize how serious a problem mental health is within the profession. And we're now starting to see changes uh, just in the past few years, um, but there's still a very long way to go. Uh, and so many lawyers have been forced to deal with their issues alone mm -hmm. and, in, and struggle through them on their own. Mm -hmm. And uh, invariably that's not the best way to deal with your problems. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I think I've said enough. Oh no, it's uh, just so such a wealth of uh, of information. I'm I'm just wondering what types of things um, we mentioned things are being done within the profession uh, to help improve lawyers' mental health. What are some of the things that um, that firms are doing, or you know, yeah. what's happening in general? So I I, I don't know too much about. 
um, about what's going on in terms of specifics. Uh, I know that the Canadian Bar Association now has a wealth of resources that are available and they run programs on mental health. Um, the American Bar Association likewise, and they released a, a, an excellent report on mental health. It was a very comprehensive and excellent report on mental health, I believe in 2017, but certainly in the last just the last several years. Um, and then I think a lot of firms are starting to recognize that this is a big issue and we better deal with it um, for the good of the firm and for the good of the people within the firm, not just the lawyers, but all the business support staff that are part of the firm as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I can talk a little bit about, uh, if you'd like me to, I can talk a little bit about what we're doing at Galling, WLG. Absolutely, because I, I hear it's quite progressive. Um, We're trying to be. Um, and um, what we did uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, is we developed and adopted uh, a comprehensive mental health strategy. Um, and that strategy focuses on encouraging people to come forward um, helping people build resilience mm -hmm. and empowering people. And, and then we've taken a number of steps to implement that strategy. And I can just share a few of those with you. Mm -hmm. uh, so for example, um, we uh, launched an initiative, which we've run twice, where we ask people to adopt commitment statements or to create their own commitment statement. And uh, we go out with this firm-wide over a period of about three or four days, and then we use it, our social media channels, to put it out uh, externally as well. Um, and the response we've gotten has been phenomenal, uh, far beyond what we expected in terms of uh, the number of people who are adopting these commitment statements and who are creating their own statements about what they're going to do for themselves and to support their colleagues. So these statements are um, the firm or the individual's commitment to do certain things, to raise awareness about Correct. mental health. Correct. Okay, okay. Correct, huh. or, or how they're gonna support themselves or how they're going to support others. Wow. Um, we've ramped up tremendously our resources and our internal programs that are related to mental health top topics. And, and before COVID pandemic hit, we had just launched an app uh, called Minds Matter um, mm -hmm. because we realized that for a lot of people, uh, they would be interested in looking at these resources and looking at these programs when they were out of the office where they may not have had access to our internet. So we made it into an app that people could download onto their phones. Oh, wow. And so they could at home, you know, when they have some time, uh, scroll through, find what they're looking for, find something that interests them, uh, that seems to resonate with them and, 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 and yet spend some time with it. And what types of resources um, so are on the app? The resources will include articles about mental health, articles about self-care. They'll include organizations that can be uh, uh, contacted. They'll include 
different uh, podcasts, different apps that are available for people who are interested in certain areas of mental health. And then they'll also, the app will also include if somebody's in an emergency situation or if somebody is with someone who they think is in an emergency situation, how to get immediate help. Oh, man, that's fantastic. Uh, um, we've improved our insurance benefits. So we've expanded the types of therapies that are covered by our insurance and we've increased the dollar amounts uh, for which people are covered. Um, we've introduced mental health first aid training. So that's a certification program that's run by the Mental Health Commission of Canada. And uh, it's a two-day program where people are trained in understanding a lot more about mental health uh, and, and depression and anxiety and substance misuse, uh, but also how to engage in conversations with people who may be struggling. Mm. And at the end of the program, those people who take it get certified, and then they become uh, known as mental health first aid uh, people who are available for others to seek out and talk to. So these are uh, uh, people that work within the firm? Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, we've, we've trained about 150 people um, in the last couple of years, including all of the firm leadership. Hmm. Um, but people across the board uh, have been trained in it and uh, and they're available and they have the the skills and the tools to hopefully have productive and helpful conversations in a very safe environment. Um, over the, since COVID, we've run four internal webinars, which have been devoted to mental health during COVID, uh, which we know uh, is causing enormous increase in mental health issues because of the, what, what has resulted from this pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're constantly adding new resources to the app uh, and to our internet in order to provide more information for people um, that are you know, related to the types of experiences that people are going through with, with COVID. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to learn from others. What are other firms doing? What are other organizations doing? What is working? What isn't working? Um, and so we're constantly engaging in dialogue with others. Uh, we're trying to get better at, at considering the mental health consequences and decisions we make. Um, you know, COVID is a good example. Organizations are being required to make some very difficult decisions. And um, the, the key here is not that you're not going to have to make difficult decisions at times. The key is to consider what are gonna be the consequences of those decisions and to then be prepared to address those consequences uh, and from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, my aspiration um, is, and I think many others, uh, is that eventually we embed mental health and mental wellness into the culture and fabric of the firm. Mm -hmm. And when we get there, if, if and when we get there, and I believe that we will, um, that's when we'll start to see the real benefits of a focus on a comprehensive mental health strategy.
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that means getting leadership on board and a lot of people who probably are a little resistant to the idea of making that such a priority. Uh, and I, I'm just so um, happy to hear about all the initiatives that uh, Galing WLG has taken. And I'm hoping that you know, the, the different um, things that they have done will trickle down to other firms once people become aware of what's being done and how effective um, these initiatives are. But I, you know, still know that we have a serious wellness issue in the profession. Um, And I just wonder if all of these initiatives are going to be enough. Um, Yeah. So I, I, I think we've, we have to sort of take a, a, a longer term view of this a, a little bit. I, I, although I have been quoted as saying that we have a crisis in our profession, which would suggest we've got to deal with it urgently. And I do think we've got to start dealing with it urgently, but realistically, it's going to take time. Um, we've just begun to raise awareness and to reduce the stigma. Um, we have a long way to go. As you say, there are still people who are going to be resistant to it. When I told my, decided to tell my story and came out with my story, I suspect there were certain people who started to look at me differently. The feedback I got was tremendous. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I was so encouraged by it and was so reaffirming that I you know, continued to, to share my story. But I'm sure some people looked at me a little bit differently. Um, so we've only begun to raise awareness and to reduce stigma. And, and reducing stigma is crucial because stigma is something that we think we uh, extend to others. Uh, we stigmatize others. But what happens with stigma is I, I never thought that I stigmatized anybody who was suffering with some mental issues. What I didn't realize that when it came to me, I bought into stigma hook, line, and sinker. Mm -hmm. So self-stigma became a huge roadblock for me to be able to recognize what I was experiencing and then feel that I could deal with it, not just by dealing with it myself, pushing through as I always had, but by reaching out for help. So that's, as important as it is to reduce stigma towards others, it's about also reducing self stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to normalize conversations around mental health. Uh, we recently had an experience, I recently had an experience where we did a, uh, a webinar for our summer students this year who've done everything virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was, and it was on mental health and, and a number of us spoke and I was struck by how open they were to it. Mm. Uh, and I thought that was great. Uh, and, and how interested and engaged they were. Um, and, and I think that's wonderful, but because we've got to normalize these conversations and we've got to make sure that they can occur in a safe environment and one where people aren't judged. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it will take sustained commitment and time. 
for us to bring about meaningful changes. Uh, the issues have been around for decades, Shelley, um, yeah. and they've been exacerbated by the technological and other changes that we're experiencing. And, and now they've been further impacted by the pandemic. So I think that we have to recognize this is, this is a long-term project. This is something that's going to take time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we got to keep at it. Exactly. A consistent approach. Absolutely. Um, at all levels. And yeah. I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that the summer students were so open to uh, entering into that dialogue. And, and here's hoping that the new cohort will be generally more open to continuing the discussion, because I think they've been um, brought up um, talking about these issues in a way that's completely different than our generation, you know? Yes, yes, uh, yes. I think you're, I hope you're right. I think you're right. Um, and I think that would be great uh, because then they'll also become advocates in their own way uh, for an environment uh, where their mental wellness is valued and can be sustained. Yeah. Yeah. And they see it as a priority. And if they're confident in, um, you know, in making that a priority and being open about it, then I, I'm hopeful that that'll be well received. Uh, yeah. I'm, <laughs> while I'm a, a typical lawyer, I'm a pessimist. <laughs> uh, on this one, I, I do have some optimism. And I think that, um, we're seeing enough out there now in terms of, again, as I mentioned earlier, the compelling business case for dealing with mental health uh, within organizations. The moral case is very clear. And I think we're seeing a new generation that's saying, this is important. And if you're not gonna deal with it in, in a proper way, if you're not gonna make get a priority if you don't care about my mental wellness and my well-being then you're not an organization for me and yeah. that's a good thing uh, mm-hmm. that happening will be a good thing mm-hmm. agreed agreed uh i recognize where we are uh, time-wise and i really appreciate you taking so much time and i'm just wondering if i could if you could indulge us for a few more minutes and sure. and just maybe share some tips for lawyers uh, to help them prioritize their mental health because as you mentioned there are sort of the internal the external and then the structural um, pressures and just helping lawyers deal with the internal how can they learn to prioritize their mental health and be okay with doing that that's a great question So again, I can only speak from my experience, um, not not as an particularly as an expert in the field. But um, I think first is incorporate self care into our routines. Um, find the time, uh, and particularly during these times, if if you're you know, working from home and you've got three kids, and you know how are you ever going to find the time for self care? But it's really, it's about a, a bit of a catch 22. If you don't find the time to take care of yourself, then you're not going to be as effective in taking care of your kids, managing your workload, buying the gross, whatever it is you got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so self-care 
uh, is is something that I think is crucial. And I talked about the things that that have helped me. Um, but as I mentioned, everyone needs to find things that help them, incorporate them into their routine, even if it's just a few minutes a day, um, and make it a priority. And make it a priority because each of us is worth it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and so seeing it as as you're worth it. Uh, so that's one thing I would say. The second, and I talk a lot about this uh, when I speak to different groups, is it's really important to recognize and accept how little control we have over most things. Mm -hmm. If COVID has taught us anything, it's how little control we have over things. Yeah. And if we focus on trying to control the outcomes of things, which we often cannot control, rather than the process that we follow, which we can control, um, then we're gonna end up feeling defeated, beaten, depressed, or anxious a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. That sounds easy, but it's not. Yeah. And I understand that it's not. I try to control outcomes all the time. <laughs> there are just too many variables that are outside of our control. Um, if you're struggling, reach out for help. Yeah. No one should have to struggle in silence or feel that it's up to them to fix things on their own. Yeah. Reach out to help. Yeah, or, or to feel that it's a fail, you're you're a failure, or it's a failing, or absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, that's a great point. It's it's not a failure. It's not weakness. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it, it's it's like any other health issue, and reach out for help. Yeah, um, and I realize it sounds simple. Uh, some of these things, and I realize they're not easy, but they can be done. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's no guarantees as to the outcomes, obviously, um, but it's worth pursuing. And, and, and then there's a final thing that I, I tend to conclude when I speak to people, um, which is uh, a, a brief statement about hope. Mm -hmm. So for me, without hope, like we're lost. And, and before I had that moment on the balcony, I, w I was hopeless. I, like I was clueless as to how I was ever going to get better. I had no idea. And then I had that moment of, on the balcony. And, and in that moment, there was like a sliver of light that broke through the darkness of that deep, dark hole that I talked about in which mm -hmm. I was trapped. And I felt the first stirrings of hope. And that having hope propelled me forward. Wow. And I can understand how for many people, especially today, it's extremely hard to feel hope. Um, we fear that we're going to get sick or we know people who have gotten sick. Many people are worrying about how they're going to pay the rent or buy food for their families. But even in dire circumstances, I think there's something about holding on to hope for dear life that can sustain us. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, a man named Vaclav Havel, who was a dissident and a statesman and a playwright. And, and 
he became the first president of Czechoslovakia, actually, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he wrote, and I think this is captures what I'm trying to say much better than I'm able to say it. Um, he said that hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty, the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Hmm. And beautiful. So I think that striving for our, our health and our well-being of every single one of us makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, Michael, thank you so much for, for sharing your personal struggles with depression so candidly with us and the lessons you've learned and also that the wonderful work you're doing to raise awareness about mental health issues in you, the Shelley. legal profession. Yeah, and to help eliminate the stigma. So um, just wonderful, wonderful connecting with you. And I'm sure that you have touched all the listeners. So I really thank you for that. And uh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on the Excel Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at excellegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L. -L E-G-A-L dot com.